You're listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. I've been watching the development of the intermediary whose executives you'll meet in this episode since before it was founded back in 1994. Now over a quarter of a century later, a lot of organic growth and a lot of M&A. This business is many thousands of times larger than it was then. It spans much of the globe and is one of the best poised to make the most of the opportunities thrown up by the latest round of mega consolidation in the broking space. It's just about to merge its Howden Retail and RKH Specialty Wholesale and Reinsurance arms together under the Howden name. This will be under the leadership of Chairman Barnaby Rugg-Price and CEO Jose Manuel Gonzalez. This was a very frank interview and one that I think reveals a lot about the passion, culture and enduring ambition at the broking business that bears the name of its founder and parent group Hyperion's CEO, David Howden. In the unlikely event of any confusion, Jose Manuel is the first of the two to speak. Enjoy the show. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. Jose and Barnaby, what are your plans for a broader Howden group when it all comes together with RKH? The merge between Howden and RKH, it's a merge because it's legally a merge, but it's a natural evolution of our businesses. I mean, we came together in 2015, and it wasn't at the back of everyone's mind within our company that at some point we were going to put together two top class broking platforms to have a one unique platform. As a matter of fact, I have to say, when we did announce that nine months ago, we did it at the back of the best results ever for each of the broking divisions. So normally, you would have this type of merge restructuring at the back of problems, and we did it not as a result of complacency, but rather the opposite, to stretch ourselves a bit more. And as I said before, we gave ourselves one year to prepare the merge. So typically an organization, we have said, we're merging, that's done. And we gave ourselves one year, we defined the top level structure, and we've been working heavily during these nine months and the three months that there's still to go, to come with the best possible platform for our people and for our clients. Because no matter what we do, 
we have in mind are two strategic priorities, which is our people first and our clients. And that has been the overarching, the overarching theme of the merge is simplicity. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci said that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And I get that that's one of the things. I mean, we were going to the market through two different platforms, through 15 different brands, and the market was asking for a single, lean, efficient platform with a strong London expertise base and with a global reach of 31 offices, what we have. And that's what we basically did. We put them together. We got the best teams out of the both. And we've come up with a platform that is ready in shape to compete and to attract the opportunities from market consolidation. So what are the plans after that? So, I mean, we've stated quite clearly that we want to become the biggest European non-US independent broking house. I think that there is no other proposition outside the US that can offer clients 31 countries of our own, 90 plus countries through our Houding One network, and with such a strong London footprint. So I think that that is absolutely. So the clients demand choice, and our responsibility is to put product and expertise at the doorstep, and the people demand a place where they can feel empowered and they can feel that they're running their own destiny. And I think that how then is that place. So, and then to wrap the whole thing up, we need technology, right? And that those three are the main key strategic topics that we base our strategy on. Our people, our clients, and technology as an enabler to make us grow further. Simplicity is really, really great. But in terms of your message Perhaps this is one for Barnaby. As a wholesaler, RKH, with a lot of wholesale business, how do you communicate that message to your retail broker customers who you're servicing on a wholesale basis? How do you reassure them that they haven't got anything to fear from this coming together that suddenly it's not RKH anymore, it's Howden? Well, no, it's, it's, you know, I think there's clarity of message. You know, So it's a stated message around nobody's unaware that Hyperion owns Howden and RKH. And so the, the best thing we can be is direct and upfront with our clients. In fairness, we can then point to a five-year track record, a 20-year track record of acting properly. We all deal with clash in our, in our business, frankly, all the time. That can be between our retail customers. It can be with markets. I think that's something that any business faces. And we can point to a track record of dealing with that openly and honestly. So if we abuse that trust, if you like, we will pay the price of that. So I, I don't think it's really changing anything. We will make sure that we deal with our retail customers, our customers full stop, in a fair, transparent and open fashion. I really don't think that changes. As I say, it's just the name above the door has changed. The ownership hasn't changed. And we're quite happy to be marked and counted by the way in which we behave. And generally, is it because you're repeating the message of being pointedly non-US, does that give a lot of comfort to your US core, US retail broker customers? Yeah, again, consistency of message there. So, you know, from my standpoint, if, if you look back to the options that we had as RKH back in 2015, why did we choose Hyperion? You know, one of the clear factors that was in there was non-conflict in the US. And so there are many others which have proven to be absolutely the reasons why we, we made the right decision. But that was one of them. And consistency of message there 
is key. The fact of RKH or Howden doesn't change our position in the US one iota, neither Howden nor RKH are present in that market. There's something that's a little bit more ambiguous strategically in, in terms of messaging is the idea of a direct specialty model, which some brokers that you would have said would have been wholesale specialty brokers are pursuing. Is this something that might appeal to you if there are really very few conflicts because it's so specialist, the business class that you're doing, and you almost do need to have direct access to the client itself? Do you mean in the US? Well, it could be anywhere, but, but well, in specialist so, classes like you know aviation yeah, so- or that kind of thing. So, so in, the, in the US, no. Internationally, clearly what we're trying to do is make sure we get the expertise, whether that resides in London or in Seville or uh, any other part of our network, to our client as quickly as we possible. So that, that's, as I was yeah. point about simplicity, is, and then in fairness, that's why you've seen businesses in London evolve from a wholesale tag to a specialty tag. So bluntly, a client's really not interested in who we get to them, how we get them there. They want fastest access to the best expertise in the space and the product that they require, wherever that is in the globe. And, and that's yeah. absolutely part of the simplicity we're talking about. Yeah, and I would add, I would add to that is being a specialist is always appealing because it's a good selling point. But we're not just specialists. We are in 31 territories. And for me, that is absolutely critical. So we are not a bunch of high-caliber experts sitting in the city of London. We deploy that expertise to Israel, to India, to Philippines. And that is a key differentiator when we compare ourselves with our peers. So that, for me, is, is the perfect combination of expertise and geography that makes us such an interest proposition for a client. We talk with a client in Portugal and okay, he can come to London to look for expertise, but we deploy that expertise into our Lisbon office or into our Munich office. And I think that's an effort that we've been doing for 25 years, building a significant retail outfit. And I think that now we're going to profit from that quite extensively because expertise and geographies, they go together on the same coin. So you're joining together, you're building an intermediary that is going to be able to go all the way from an original client, all the way to the capital markets, all the way across the insurance and reinsurance value chain. Do you have big ambitions now, perhaps to get into the reinsurance treaty space and beyond that? The recent way in which the market is consolidating brings a lot of opportunities. And as I was saying before, we are probably in our best shape ever to grasp those opportunities. So we, we look at every opportunity in which we can add value in the short, in the medium to long term. So, and certainly reinsurance is, is one of them. I mean, there is an overarching theme about consolidation is that the lack of choice for clients. I mean, we get calls from insurers, we get calls from clients we get called from people and the thing is like they are worried because there is lack of choice and i think that one of the main things that we have to do is ensuring that the insurance broken market has a solid alternative to go to whether you are an insurer whether you are people working in the industry or whether you are a client and the reinsurance industry is uh, one of those places where consolidation will dry out many of the options. Barnaby, would you say something? Yeah, I think, I, I think that clearly that's a significant opportunity for us. And, and as a what is very strongly weighted towards an insurance broker at the moment, then clearly we have the flow with the markets, which I think is an important component of that piece. So I, I think we're well situated to do that. We've also got some work to do to make sure we 
we come up with a credible team and a credible offering in that space. But it's clearly an opportunity for us and one we're looking at hard. You've got a retail network of considerable scale with the 31 countries. Do you feel that there's uh, an opportunity to manufacture product, to go and get that product and then distribute that through your network to go and get something that's special and not available elsewhere and bring that product to the network from the higher end? There is something really unique about us. It's like we are a network and many of the countries we are, they are run by local people that go and entrepreneur in themselves. So they have their own way to approach the markets and we give full autonomy to them because we understand that the mixture of global and local is key on our value proposition. But it's also true, and that comes a reality even more now with our cage and how they're coming together, manufacturing those products like we're doing with carbon credits and, and being able to distribute them through our network is going to be quite something that we're going to focus on. I don't think I need to ask you this directly about how much the MMC and GLT merger and now the proposed Aon Willis merger, well, sorry, MMC GLT acquisition and then the Aon Willis merger has affected your strategic thinking because it's already come up in all of the answers you've already given. And now you're talking about, I mean, how does this really now of a very significant scale? Do you think you're actually of a sort of scale now where you can take on the big three of today and what will probably be the big two of tomorrow for global multinational accounts? Do you have any ambition to do this? Our strategic thinking was always from 25 years ago when David set up the first shop, people, clients, and so on. Well, really, MMC and JLT and Aon Willis Stars Watson have changed is that we are now of a scale to take those thoughts that we've brought with us for 25 years much more relevant. And I think that that is the change of it all. I mean, if this consolidation would have happened to us five years ago, we would have not been ready to be a relevant player. So, I mean, we don't want to take the space of anyone. We want to have our own space where people can deliver, where insurers feels we are partner of them, but certainly we are building that alternative of choice. That alternative of choice is obviously we have to service global clients. And as I was saying before, we have just recently won two tenders in the middle of COVID that the overarching theme of those tenders were that the clients wanted choice. And there are no other broker in the world, XUS, that has such an important global reach, as I was saying before. So I think we are top three in Spain after Elon and Willis Towers Watson. We're top two in Israel. We are top one in Finland and in Greece. We are number six in Germany. So I think that we clearly are going to be the third choice for many of those clients that they want a broker that is different from the ones that we already know. But just to make it clearer, you can service multinational business now, but probably not US headquartered and very US focused multinational business, one presumes. Well, you know, that, that, that is the beauty. I mean, we have a strong partnerships with our retail, US retail clients. And when you were asking before about one of David's golden rules of not going retail in the US, I always think to myself, I mean, if I have solid US clients and partners and I can help them outside of the US. So why would I go? I mean, we still have a long way to go to become a strong player internationally. We are not in France, 
we are not in Italy as a broken house. So we still have a long way to go in Europe to become relevant also. So, I mean, I think that the relationship with our U.S. partners is about being able to service them when they come to London and also when their clients go outside of the U.S. Because apart from Aaron Willis, uh, Marsh, and maybe Lockton at some point, Gallagher, none of them have international networks. And as I was saying before, that's what we've been building for 25 years. And we've been crafting a very unique culture that now is going to be one of our main unique selling points, I guess. Yeah, so just to clarify that you're not going to break David Howden's golden rule to... No uh, way. To, no, no, no US no. retail for the foreseeable no, future. No, no US retail. No US retail. Absolutely not. Okay. Well, you mentioned about potential gaps in your network there in different territories. So do you think there's still more major acquisitions to be done for Howden? Obviously, Howden has been the product of a lot of organic growth and a lot of occasional inorganic growth with M&A. So what kind of strategy is it from now on up? Do you think there are still some big deals to be done or is it just going to be more organic growth and perhaps smaller bolt-on acquisitions? No, no, I think it's going to be, um, I mean, I mean, we just recently did one this week our first deal post-COVID in Spain, uh, the leader of the Flex platform uh, business in, in Spain to, to build on our EV proposition. So, I mean, we have a very solid organic growth, double digit. So that gives us the tranquility that our business is healthy running. But we are conscious that if we want to be that alternative of choice, we need to do some M&A. I think that that's on our agenda. It's not, we are not a consolidator, so we are not just buying businesses and so on. It has to make sense. It's got to fit with our strategy, whether to become relevant on markets, whether to become relevant in Europe, whether to buy a specialty, whether just because the guy that we're buying, it fits absolutely with our culture. We've got a story behind each acquisition. And I could take you through 25 acquisitions during the last 10 years. And I can tell you the story behind that. And, and I think that that's one of the beauty of our company. We just don't have a check and go there buying companies. We get them on board and try the best out of them together with us. And we don't always get it right. We don't always get it right. We all make mistakes and we learn from our mistakes. But I think that if I do a, a big resume of all the acquisitions we've done, there is always a story behind that. And if we find a good story, we will have a good acquisition. And that's going to happen three months from now or three years. I don't know, whenever they come. You mentioned about culture and the importance of, obviously, you've done all these deals and making those things work strategically and making them work on a cultural sense. So with RKH and Howden, obviously, this has been now five years in the making already. But how do you, now you're cementing this identity as Howden globally, how do you build this positive new culture out of different businesses, or two major businesses? You know, someone, someone did ask me a similar question three weeks ago, and he said, how do you keep the culture? And I responded, hard work, hard work day and night. I mean, we were born three people in 1994, 25, 26 years ago. We've integrated a lot of businesses. I was myself an entrepreneur setting up the Spanish operation. So it's, it's got a collection. Then RKH people crew joined in. And I think that what's been successful about our culture is that we have not kept exactly the same. We've been able to make our culture better as people was coming on board. 
I've said this many times to Barnaby, RKH, when RKH came to Hyperion, Hyperion became a better company, just like that. And I think that that ability that we have to integrate and to get the most out of everyone's culture is one of the key success. But then you really have to work on that day and night. Culture is not for granted. I mean, I see some people in the market talking about culture like something that you can manufacture overnight. And culture is the result of 25 years of hard work, of failure, of a lot of failure, of sharing problems. And the final end product is what we have today. And if I look at Barnaby and he can build on this now, there is a sense of pride about what we're doing. And that is very important to our culture. Everyone thinks that we are independent on the sense that we run our own destiny. And there is an important thing, which is a sense of legacy. We are not doing this to make a lot of money in three years or in five years. We are doing this because we want this company to remain relevant 25 years from now. And I think that that is probably the most, the most unifying message on our culture. We've got people from Philippines to Chile to Mexico to the Nordics. I mean, completely culturally diverse. But if you talk to any of them, if you talk to Jorma Hakonen or to Shai Ward or to Pancho, they will all say that they want to build this company forever. And I think that that sense of legacy is one of the most important things when it comes to our culture. So, Barnaby? Yeah, I think ultimately what we're doing now is the affirmation that the merger that took place five years ago was absolutely the right thing for us to do. And, and maybe just to give you a glimpse into that. So, you know, inevitably, there's a point where we had to sit down with the senior management of the RKH team and talk about the concept that we were going to merge the two brands together, the business together. And the response was, well, of course. And that to me speaks absolute volume. So it's not as if Jose Manuel and I are coming together to work together now as something new. We've been part of the group executive for five years. We sat alongside each other for five years. Howden is RKH's number one client, has been for three years. So the working together, this is really just formalizing a process that was underway. And as JMG said, the, the merging of those two cultures, the continuous improvement of that culture in every firm or group of people that join us. You know, look at the culture that the people that have joined over the last year or so brought to the firm. It will definitely change and it will definitely be improved. And that sense of legacy and, and of being in command of your, of your own destiny is really important. And of course, that's literally embodied by the fact that we have over a thousand shareholders. So we don't talk about acting like a shareholder, as I've heard somebody once say. We act like shareholders because we are, we're both employees, colleagues and shareholders. One thing, Mark, I'll give you an anecdote. We have a strategy paper now called Cool Bodies, which is the Latin word for where are you going? And we were, we were having a strategy session the strategy session that paper came from and Danny Sever, who is the CEO of Israel, and we did put down a billion dollar income. Okay, that was her target. I don't know. We came out, we were smoking something, whatever. And he said, Jose Manuel, it's okay, we get to a billion dollars, but we cannot lose sense of who we are. And that same phrase is written at the forefront of that paper because there is no point on us winning financially if we lose our soul because that's the reason why i'm here I mean, why a guy from seville moves to london i'm 47 have four beautiful children 
is because we're building something absolutely different and everything is worth it. And if it was just because of money, we wouldn't do it. And maybe that sounds a bit cheesy, but it's absolutely true. And because when you're given the opportunity to change a bit of the world, when I see people that started working with us just out of university, and now they are running, he's the co-CEO of Latin America. Or when I see someone going from Turkey to Spain, the importance of creating path for people is absolutely critical to what we do. So. We cannot lose track of who we were at any moment now that things are looking so good. Well, a question to you, Barnaby. Obviously, now you've got your new role, but you've just come from this, your time at Hyperion X. For one, how has Hyperion X, that experiment or that, uh, you know, that investment, how has that progressed in the time that you spent there as somebody to come from the classical broking side of a business into something new and the, the white heat of technology? How's that progressed? And, and then... I'm going to ask you as a secondary question to that. What does that experience at Hyperion X now bring to Howden as you're trying to completely globalize and unify and simplify its systems? So, I mean, I think the first thing to say is the reason that I'm able to take the opportunity to move back into the breaking business is because Hyperion X has very much moved from a science experiment, as you describe it, into the forefront of our business. You know, that we're winning tenders that are essentially digital tenders and the clients are saying that's the bit that's the bit you need me to answer in a digital fashion so what you know i'm handing over to paul johnson a very capable individual who's been operating both in the insurance space but also in the data and technology space a clear vision for howden for where hyperion x supports that vision as well as obviously within jewel and so i think the lesson for me is having spent two years involved in that space i think the lessons are that the original thesis, if you like, of why I took the challenge was that this was an absolutely fine. If we wanted to secure our legacy for you know the next 25 years, as Jose Manuel has talked about, not just surviving but thriving, data and digital is absolutely vital part of our future. I don't think anything I've seen in the last two years would either dissuade me from that picture or, in, in fairness, my colleagues. And I think the other lesson from there is what you must have is you must have a mixture of all of those things data, digital, but also insurance. If you, if you are designing it as a science experiment, you are inevitably going to disappear somewhere off into the ether. You might miraculously do something, you might land a moonshot, but actually what we're, we're about is, is anchoring all the things that we're doing in the dynamics of the industry, how we deliver those to our clients, how we solve the cost problem. Absolutely clear, we understand that's a problem for all of us, by the way, and that we need to be part of that solution. So then to answer your second part of your question, bringing that back into Howden, I wouldn't really describe it as bringing it back into Howden because the amount of work that, we, that we're doing on behalf of our colleagues and with our colleagues, it goes up exponentially. You go through a phase of, frankly, as we crossed over the line, whether it was 18 months ago, with a few colleagues and a vague idea of what we ought to be up to. A year after that, with a very clear vision of the things that we're doing, six months after that, we've articulated that vision and that vision is, if not universally understood, is well understood by the leadership of our team. And then we see the business coming back towards Hyperion X and saying, okay, this is what we want to be doing. These are the things that we think are, are important for us. How can you help us? So I think there's a very solid pipeline of activity. There's a very clear body of evidence that delivering digital solutions for our clients is going to be a differentiating factor for us. But it must be delivered alongside the insurance expertise, the talent that our clients want. If we have both of those things, then we've got a fantastic combination. As Howden now joining together 
with RKH into one global system. Presumably, you've got a big chance to bring down the frictional costs of operating a global platform. One presumes that you'd be looking to try and unify all your systems at the back end. Do you think generally the industry is doing enough? Is it moving fast enough to bring down frictional costs? I think if you looked at it in totality, your answer that would probably be no. But I suspect it's both now starting to move and I think on the precipice of moving quite fast. I think anecdotally, if you talk to colleagues, remuneration at the front end is under pressure because we're in a hard market environment, right? So that gives the ability for insurers to put those costs under pressure. And that's fine. That's a that's market dynamic that we've dealt with in the past and we'll, we'll continue to deal with. I also think if you look at the, if you like the architecture of the marketplace, there are component parts that are starting to emerge that are going to drive that process, whether it's PPL, Whitespace, Beasley Beta, Key Syndicate. So there are plenty of opportunities for us to engage with the market in its broad sense and work with partners to do that. And of course, we're one of the few, possibly, I think, probably the only broker who says that we understand that and are actively in certain places where we're able to deliver a better, faster, dare I say, digital solution. We're moving first to say, right, we will bring our acquisition costs down. I have to say that does rely on that cost issue resides on both sides of the fence, if you like. And interestingly, I mean, you know, I'll talk to Stephen Greener, who runs Bowers, you know, a very significant MGA broker. The pressure on their acquisition costs has now stopped. They've had two years. They've been involved in that discussion. They've taken their medicine, if I can put it that way, in that space. And now to the level where the insurers are comfortable. So I think there are a number of different factors going on within there, but I think the component parts to see some significant drops in the medium term are clearly emerging. When we talk about automatic underwriting, we forget that that probably involves automatic broking and therefore there are frictional costs on the broking side that can come out as well. Yeah, of course. Do you think the insurance sector is going to come out of COVID-19 with a, an enhanced reputation or one that's been slightly diminished? I fear inevitably slightly diminished. You've got some, let's be honest about it, some genuine claims that are are stuck in, you know, whether in the courts or or in, in some form of dispute with insurers. You've equally got some unrealistic expectations of what the industry is there realistically able to cope with, if you like, in the biggest sense. So I fear, you know, some of the knee-jerk reaction, some of the sort of blanket exclusions that we see coming out isn't helpful. So if we can learn the lessons from some of the things in here and take those into the future and, and start to build products that reflect 2020, then I think that will be a, a lesson. I think it's likely, as we currently stand, that I think it's reasonably inevitable that there will be some tarnishment of the industry's reputation. Whether that's fair or otherwise, I just, I just that's how I see it. A couple of questions about the marketplace that we're in at the moment. Obviously, we know we're in a global hardening market situation. And we've had new capital being formed and capital being raised and new carriers now being mooted. We'll see how many of them actually fully materialize with a balance sheet and with money in the bank. But that emerging class of 2020, what sort of market opportunity have they got compared with other classes that we'd say happened in 2005 or in 2001 or in 1993, for example? It'll be very interesting to see. I don't think that's set yet. I think you're obviously going into a hardening market environment, but you're equally going into a much weaker economic environment than any of the, whatever we thought about 2008. I think that's clearly, this is an order of different order of magnitude. Equally, you know, having had some fairly apocalyptic predictions around loss scenarios, those are tending to to tail back towards, frankly, more realistic and manageable numbers, something, frankly, that 
in Hyper Next, we were forecasting right from the start. So I think as what impact have both of those things had on the opportunity, which is really a, it's really a 21 opportunity, you know, formed in 20, but actually delivered in 21. I think there's quite a long way to play in that. So I think it's not as big as people thought it was six weeks ago. And do you think it's more likely to be just a specialty play? You know, we see obviously there's obvious opportunity in the US ENS market, which I'm sure you know extremely well. Is it just a specialty thing or do you think it's more broad you know, in reinsurance as well uh, well, and I, other places? Yes, yeah, so I, well, I, I think, yes, yeah, especially in, in, in reinsurance are the, are the obvious areas because there's a well-trodden path to that that doesn't involve, you know, when you, if you're able to get a lawyer's platform, let's say for sake of argument or, or, or a collateralized reinsurer, you're, you're able to get on the pitch reasonably quickly. You know, the, the skill for those businesses will be over time is can they then move from there into something broader in the way that others have done so in the past in the short term I would expect that's where the opportunity lies and I suspect that's where the focus will be thanks so much congratulations on your new role Barnaby and obviously the same role Jose Manuel but good luck on this new journey you're really starting together thanks so much for spending some time with me today on the voice of insurance pleasure Mark thank you my pleasure well I hope you enjoyed today's episode if you did Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.com. TheVoiceOfInsurance.com.